Hello again, everybody. I'm Kevin Michalowski, editor of Concealed Carry Magazine, and this is your monthly Ask an Attorney webinar, web segment. I, I, I don't really know what we'll call it, but uh, as always, I will remind you that this is a member benefit for all of our USCCA members out there. Um, we do this to help keep you informed and answer your questions and make sure that things are running smoothly because we don't want to see anybody get in any trouble because they made mistakes. So um, as always, I will point out, I am not the attorney. Um, I am joined by Tom Grieve. He is the head of the largest criminal defense firm in Wisconsin. And uh, also, I, I call him my good friend. So uh, he's a former prosecutor. Thank you again for being here, Tom. Always great to have you. Are you ready to get into the Ask an Attorney webinar today? Let's do this. It should be good. Well, let's hope so. I mean, that that's high praise. It should be good, folks. Yeah, yeah, yes, it should be. It's one of those things that I always uh, want to hear the words should be or or shouldn't be, um, you know, on traffic stops as a police officer. You know, I ask, are there any are there any weapons or drugs or anything in the car that yeah. I need to know about? And if, if the guy says there shouldn't be, um, that, that's a yes. We're going to we're going to look around if, if we get an opportunity to search that <laughs> those, car. Those are some so. of the best, the best videos. You know, as a former state prosecutor, criminal defense attorney is, you know, <laughs> watching, you know, the officer pull over for somebody for speeding, you know, they come up to the side of the door. Mm -hmm. Are there any drugs or anything like that in here? And they kind of think they're like, well, you know, I, uh, no, I, I don't think <laughs> so, you know? And, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. Or, or, or I, I, I don't really know. It's my girlfriend's car. Um, yeah, oh, okay. it's my cousin's car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah ab absolutely. Ooh. So um, <laughs> let's jump right in here and, and, and start talking about uh, um, the importance. You know, we talk about training and the importance of training all the time, Tom. Um, I would like to uh, get your opinion and uh, some of the other viewers out there, too. Um, how important it is, is it to document the firearms training that you've gotten or the self-defense training or any other sort of training that you've gotten? Um, is this really going to help you in court after an incident? Sure. And, and I'm going to say yes. And here's why is the fact that we see it all the time, uh, particularly in court where people who are not members of the, um, of, of the second amendment, of the I'm going to protect myself and my family culture, you know, they try to paint us as these as these crazies who are just out there, you know, they bought a gun and now they've got a license to do something that they maybe they shouldn't be doing and they don't know what they're doing and they don't have any training. And it gives an opportunity to push back on that narrative in a very real and a very powerful way in court if push comes to shove. But the big caveat I'm going to throw in that are two things. Number one, that pushback will only be as strong as your training. If you're out there getting uh, bad training with bad curriculums and so forth, uh, number one, you're probably gonna do the wrong things, so that's not gonna be good. And number two is it's just gonna, again, feed back into that, that cycle, that loop of, well, look, they don't know what they're doing. And the prosecutor's gonna try to use that potentially to crucify you in court. The second thing, again, goes back to the, well, okay, if you are getting good training now, uh, you're gonna be held to that standard. And mm -hmm. that's that's a good thing because look, you're gonna be held to that standard no matter what, right? The law is gonna hold you that standard and good training should be working in concert with uh, the laws of your state, wherever you are, whatever your jurisdiction may be. So you're gonna be held to that standard regardless. So you may as well learn them up front, and you may as well be as strong as possible on that training up front to document, no, 
I understood how serious this was. I've been trained in de-escalation. I've been trained in, in all these different things. I, I'm not some Yahoo out there like you may be trying to paint me as Mr. or Mrs. Prosecutor uh, and so on and so forth. So it gives you it gives you a realistic understanding of what the laws are, the standard that you will be held to, whether you get the training or not. And that gives you the best possible opportunity to comply with those laws as well as to push back on what I assure you will be the counter narrative in court. God forbid, should it come to that. Yeah, and I, uh, um, I I conduct uh, some concealed carry classes myself, and I, I love the USCCA curriculum because it's written down, it's it's right out there. And uh, what I talk about to the students in the class is, um, yeah, I will come to court if you're involved in an incident. I, I you know I offer I will come to court, but I am going to tell the judge, jury, and prosecutor, and everybody else in court exactly what I told you to do. And if right. you didn't do the things I told you to do, you're going to be in trouble. And um, right. because that, and again, that's what I love about the USCCA curriculum is that it's all laid out right there. And you go through the outline and, and we talk about all of the different elements so that if I ever have to go to court, if any one of my students ends up in a shooting, I can say, yes, this is what I spoke to them about. And we talked about de-escalation. We talked about um, you know, using the appropriate level of force or stopping using force after the threat is stopped or something like that. So, um, yeah, keeping track of all of your training is very important. But um, the the flip side of that is you had better be following that training that you were provided by a a reasonable and a, a top notch firearms trainer. You don't. Uh, you 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 want to be checking out your firearms trainers. You don't want to be going out there getting bad information. Um, I, I sat through some just horrible, um, what was called self-defense training, um, at the blade show a year ago in, uh, in Atlanta, uh, last June. And I, I sat there and I was just shaking my head. I could not believe some of the advice this guy was giving people about, yep, yeah, you're going to have to shoot them and to shoot them a whole bunch, make sure they're dead. You know, I'm like, no, 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 please. <laughs> so uh, following that class, I spoke to one of the organizers and said, you know, maybe I could come and, and present this class for you later on. But um, very important that if if you get good training, that you follow that training and, and you document it. What should people keep when they leave a training class, Tom? And and should they provide it to their attorney as soon as they're involved in a shooting? Sure. And you know, before answering that question, I just want to emphasize that I, I understand that there's a lot of, you know, some sometimes there's free classes and sometimes those free classes are great. All right. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes there's cheap classes and sometimes those cheap classes are great and sometimes oftentimes are not. Um, Folks, you will pay for your training one way or the other. Uh, maybe that's going to be 100, 150, a couple hundred bucks, whatever it might be to get good training. And sometimes, like I said, good training is free training. Good training is cheap training. Um, I would say that generally speaking, the odds are against that, uh, but by no means impossible. Um, there are some very, very good instructors out there who, who do volunteer their time and services. However, those are few and far between. And in my opinion, and in my own personal experience, having sat through some of these classes um, without saying anything, just just as a participant, uh, it's it can be sometimes scary, and and you will be held to these standards whether you know them or not, whether you're taught them or not, and as a result, you will pay for this one way or the other. So, buy once, cry once, get good training. As far as the documentation, uh, oftentimes in my experience, many of the um, many of the top-notch firearm classes, and this is, again, 
one of the nice things about going to a class that you have to pay for is that they will often give you written materials, some sort of three ring binder, uh, you know, with the curriculum in it and an opportunity for you to take notes and all those sorts of things. So hang on to the curriculum, hang on to those sorts of things. I know that sometimes in some places as situations allow, there's an opportunity for a live fire component so that you can demonstrate shooting proficiency. Um, that's, that can be, that can be very useful, uh, to demonstrate that. Yes, you can hit your target. Yes. I was aiming at the bad guy and so forth. To my mind, I'm less concerned about that. I'm more concerned about, because the shoot's going to be the shoot, right? That's going to be part of the fact pattern here. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that, that is not going to be relevant under any circumstances, but what will always be relevant is to show the training and the preparation for the mental side, the gravity to the situation. Uh, about the fact that you know you're not you're not hunting someone down, whether that's in your backyard or or, in, or inside your home. Um, you are doing everything possible to protect your life, to save lives, not to take lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And and folks who are watching this now understand that the the physical aspects, uh, the the actual shooting aspects of a self defense shoot, are are oftentimes very simple it's you know it's it's a very close shot it happened very quickly um the legal aspects of a self-defense action are where things get really murky or muddled or you better know what's going on before you start and you know here in the state of wisconsin you're not even required to shoot a gun to uh, in the training that you have to take um to get your concealed carry permit we talk about things like de-escalation and safe weapons storage and the legal use of force uh, because the laws are much more important than the shooting. Um, the, the actual shooting, the actual sight, picture, trigger press, put the round on target, um, that's, that's a very small portion of what's going on um, when, you, when you're shooting a gun, when you're defending yourself. All of the legal aspects leading up to and following that shooting are of... Uh, uh, monumentally more important um, right. than you know um, than how accurately you shot and uh, you know true you can get in some trouble if you launch around down the road and you know you're responsible for that you miss the target and it goes and and hits a kid in the front yard or something uh, like that so yes the shooting is important as well but but what you're doing before and specifically what you're doing after that shooting um, is is a probably where you're going to get in, get yourself in the most trouble or have the most questions asked about uh, what's going on. Um, and it, it, maybe we can touch on that a little bit, uh, Tom. Um, immediately following a shooting, you as a, as a prosecutor, what questions would you want to be asking? Um, and, and let's tell the viewers so that they can be ready for this afterwards. Um, obviously, the police officers are going to be there and they're going to be doing a report. And as you look these reports over from with a prosecutor's eye, what questions would you be asking to, to see if this is a justified shooting or not? So number one is, uh, is there any hard evidence? So are there any videos? Are there any ATM cameras clicking away? Just what do we have that's an independent objective source as objective and independent as possible anyways, as a camera at whatever weird grainy angle it may be at and so forth. Um, we're going to review all the witness statements. We're going to see basically, okay, here's what witness one, two, three, four, five say, here's where they conflict. Here's what they agree upon. Um, likewise, if the uh, suspects, which we would call, you know, the, the good guy who survived the case with a gun, God willing, um, 
the, what what was the uh, the person of interest or what was the suspect? What was the however it is you want to term it? Uh, did they give a statement? What did they say? Uh, and that statement will generally, of course, this doesn't ever seem to make it in the reports in my experience, but sometimes those statements are six, eight hours long of grilling. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got basically a Rolodex of detectives coming through asking more or less the exact same questions, 10 different ways through you know, three or four different detectives or cops or patrolmen, whoever it might be. Um, and they're looking for any inconsistency as far as how you tell your story. Uh, and that's all going to be aggregated together and the prosecutor is going to be reviewing it. Now, special attention is going to be paid on, uh, you know, kind of the components here are what was the situation before the shoot, right? So what's the context? Why are these people here? Is this just a random, uh, a random, you know, someone's loading up their car after going grocery shopping and, and they're approached? Uh, was this a, no, these two people had bad blood and they met to hash it out or whatever it might be. But you know, the, the context can be important. It's not every single one of these cases is just a random street situation. Um, the next thing, of course, is then, all right, so that's that's kind of the backstory as to what's going on. What's, what's actually happening here? What's the who, what, where of uh, who produced a firearm or a weapon first? And that can be a huge one in these situations as to, you know, the bad guy would say that the good guy, and I've had cases self-defense cases where where the bad guy said no the good guy tried to basically rob me and and it's like what are you talking about but um that's that's what you're going to be left with oftentimes and it's not necessarily the bad guy it's the bad guy's girlfriend who is there it's 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 the bad guy's buddies that were there it's all these other people um but you know who produced a firearm first who who did this who did that and basically at the moment when the presumably good guy in our scenario uh, decided to employ and did employ lethal force in their own self-defense or defense of another at that moment where they legally justified. And again, that kind of goes back into the, well, what's the backstory as to why they're all here? And of course, mm-hmm. um, what's the context? Who said what? Did somebody issue a deadly threat? Did they then produce a knife, a firearm, a baseball bat, whatever it was in order to, to reproduce that? And then kind of the third aspect to it then is, okay, now we've got, you know, we've got shots in the air. Um, how does that go down? Because does the good guy shoot him once? The bad guy drops. We all see this on camera. And then the good guy walks up and and does a mag dump into him. Uh, that's obviously going to be an entirely different scenario, even if the first bullet was legal. So this is this is how this works. All right, this is actually how this works. So it's mm-hmm. it's not a matter of well, your first bullet's fine, and that gives you a license to to empty your magazine. Uh, you got to go from the first bullet to the last bullet. Was everything legal? Everything all the way through. Um, and look, there's going to be a bunch of different versions floating around of witness one said this, witness two said this, witness three said that. Those three people, even if they don't know each other, they are not going to agree with each other. There's going to be details that are going to be different. Uh, rarely are these situations captured on camera, period, let alone entirely captured on camera. So uh, it's it's all very very important, but that's that's the gist to it. It's it's a lot of things that play into it, and of course you can then. I'm just lastly I'm going to layer in there is you then get your wildcard factors, right? So a couple of those wildcard factors. Uh, okay, well, let's pull up the social media of uh, of you know the the good guy with the gun. Well, boy, he he made a lot of comments about just kill them all on on Facebook, or you know um, you know don't leave them alive, you know. Uh, 
uh, you know, dead man can't can't speak or something like that, or you know, all these sorts of what all these sorts of statements. If you subpoena their phone, their emails, whatever, if the person gave you permission to look through them, even better, um, that can definitely color someone's perceptions. Uh, you know, another thing is, of course, if you put embellishments on your firearm, if you put Punisher decals, if you put all those sorts of things on there, that is absolutely going to color the prosecutor, law enforcement, and ultimately a judge and jury's perception of what were you thinking? What was your mens rea at the time? Um, and I'm not saying that it's going to be able to flip 100% good shoot into a conviction. Um, I wouldn't, th I've seen juries do a lot of really weird things, Kevin. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I would not put it past a jury uh, to, to let, to basically convict on that basis. And let me be clear, if you have 100% good shoot, it ought not matter, okay? It ought yeah. not matter if you're wearing that Punisher shirt or something. But I'm telling you, it will. And it might change the outcome. And I'm not saying that's fair, mm -hmm. but I am saying that that's the real world that we live in. Yeah, and and in, in just a minute, we'll talk more about uh, firearm embellishments or modifications. But I just want to point out, too, to all the viewers here, understand that as the good guys, we wait around for the police to come. And the police show up and it makes their job much easier to investigate if there is someone standing there who is involved in, in this situation. Um, think about it. Typically, a bad guy gets involved in a shooting and he either drops his gun or keeps it with him and runs away. And then the police have to go try to find him. We're calling the police. We're the ones who are asking the police to come there and talk to us so we can tell our story about what happened. So we need to understand that. It, it, they're going to look at every single angle. The investigation into your shooting is going to last a lot longer than your concealed carry class ever did. So, folks, please, please keep that uh, in mind when you're doing that. Now, and, and hang on, I, I can I can oh, feel the me. questions rolling in here. Of well, wait, you know, you guys have talked about raise your right to an attorney. Don't don't talk to police afterwards. Yes, I am not withdrawing or redacting that that advice. The question that, that we talked about here is, well, as a prosecutor, what am I looking at? Well, as a prosecutor, I'm looking at the fact that the good guy almost always talks. It's like one of those, you know, 99% of the time, it's true 100% of the time. I mean, it, it yeah, everybody talks. And, and let me be emphatically clear, you shouldn't, okay? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not saying never will you ever down the line. I'm just saying that at the time of the incident, Give the bare details. It's on the back of your USCCA membership card. Give the bare details about what you need to do under the circumstances. And at that point, lawyer up. Keep in mind, there's a profound difference between raising your right to silence versus raising your right to an attorney. And you want to raise your right to an attorney. Uh, that's the short answer. The long answer is th there's a lot more nuances. But just say, you know, polite, respectfully, uh, officers, I will, I will cooperate with you, but... I need to speak to an attorney first. Yeah, absolutely. And if they're, and that, they should understand. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say is out there on the street, um, yes, I will make a full and complete statement after I have talked with my attorney. Um, that's, that's what I want to do. And folks, if you're out there, if you're involved in an incident like this and, um, and police officers, granted, okay, I, I am one, so I, I, you know, I don't want to disparage members of my profession as well, um, but... Police officers are there to try to get as much information as they can, and they might be pressuring you to talk and, and asking you questions. Maybe you can at least help in the investigation. You know, he was wearing he was wearing a black hooded sweatshirt and he ran that way. Um, that statement, but 
certainly don't say, you know, um, if, if the officer starts asking what we are calling guilt seeking questions, um, certainly don't don't answer those until you have spoken with your attorney. And if, if you decide that you need more time, tell the officers that you want to be taken to the hospital and you want to get checked out, you're, you're really stressed or something like that. And that will give you more opportunity to get away from those cops for a little bit. And, and they'll stop asking you questions while you go get your medical clearance. And, and, you know, then it's okay for them to come and talk to you again. And you're right. Tom is right. Don't just say you want to remain silent, say that you want to speak to an attorney. And, and that should usually um, get the ball rolling in the right direction to make sure that you are, uh, um, that, that the, uh, the officers who are investigating will then wait for your attorney to arrive. And it, honestly, it might take some time folks. So, um, Tom Listen, loves not to say arrive. that it's not like on TV. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, I, yeah. You, you took the words out of my mouth. This, this does not work the way that it does in every legal movie and TV show where, you know, I sidle into the, uh, you know, the sheriff's department with, you know, my, my brown leather briefcase and my styrofoam cup of coffee and tell the detectives to scram while you're getting interrogated. That's how I get tased. Okay. That, that, yeah. that is not how it works in real life. The cavalry is coming, but you have to be the one to stand strong. All right. You've got to be the one to raise your own rights. I cannot raise your rights for you. I cannot tell them that you are raising your right to an attorney. Your spouse cannot do that. Your best friend cannot do that. Your power of attorney cannot do that. Only you can do that. Well, I'm going to have to see if I can locate any video of you sidling, Tom. I just, I kind of want to see that. So I'm trying um, to picture what sidling would even be now. I don't know yeah, where that really came from, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, but well, I'm looking for maybe it'd make a good now. into the fray, you know? Yeah, we can. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're going to get a new leather briefcase out of it because we'll, I do. We'll right. Yeah. No, it's got to be yeah. an old one. It's got to be yeah. an old one. It's got to be yeah. like one of those hard sided yeah. old ones, you know, where you can, you got to pop like the clasps open. That's, okay. that's really yeah. what we need here. Okay. Uh, all right, I, I can envision all of this now. So, and and let's let's move down this uh, the the uh, path of gun modifications. Uh, this is the thing that you know. I happen to carry a semi-custom gun. I, I carry a very highly modified Glock 19, um, but I haven't done anything to the trigger that will make the trigger lighter or or anything like that. Um, so, let's talk about this idea that that. Gun modifications are going to get the prosecutor to come after you hard and fast. Is that true? I think number one, it's going to have to, everything's going to be viewed through the lens of what we discussed earlier. So what's the context of the shoot? Basically, was it a good shoot? And if it's a good shoot, mm -hmm. uh, then I'm, I would still be concerned about the embellishments, i.e. the kill them all, the you're dead sucker, smile, smile for, and wait for flash or something like that. Yeah, I would be worried about yeah. those. I'm mean, worried about if somebody dropped a set of Trigicom sites or something like that on their, uh, you know, on on their weapon. No, I'm I'm really not that worried about it. And of course, there's always the snappy comeback of, well, look, I wanted to make sure that I, I didn't hit a good guy. You know, I wanted to make sure I was yeah. only going to hit the bad guy who was trying to kill me. So you always have that snappy comeback in your pocket. Um, you know, the other question then, and somewhat of a little bit more of a, of a disputed and gray area gets gets to the trigger, just like what you're talking about. And to my mind, if you have a lightened trigger, so Glock triggers come from the factory, depending, and they used to have the New York option, right? Which was like eight mm -hmm. pounds or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But otherwise, I think NYPD. they're at five and a half. Right. Yeah. I think they're mm -hmm. at five and a half if memory serves. So 
Um, if you start lightening your trigger, let's say you bring it down to, to three and a half or something, or maybe four. So we're not at the, you know, the bullseye, you know, one pound trigger pull uh, competition league or something like that. But, you know, we're, we've lightened it up. At the end of the day, if you still made a good shoot, you're still going to have made a good shoot. There's going to be questions that come to mind, of course, of you are increasing your chances for a negligent discharge. You are increasing your chances for different things, and that's going to be relative to your training. Uh, when you start talking about certain types of firearms, you know, you start lightening the the trigger pull. Um, is that going to have an effect on primer strike, i.e., well, are you still going to leave enough spring pressure potentially, depending on the type of firearm it is? You know, revolvers come to mind. Uh, if you're lightening the 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 trigger pull, are you compromising the reliability of the firearm that every time you pull the trigger, it's going to go bang? So that's going to be a question. But let's assume that you have all those sorts of things resolved. Uh, again, a good shoot is a good shoot is a good shoot. Are there worlds and situations where the prosecutor or someone is going to be making some sort of argument that... Uh, that you were off your your uh, your rocker when you're modifying the the trigger and when you're doing this or when you're doing that. Look, this is America. People can say whatever they want. If you don't think that that applies in court, inside the scope of the rules of evidence, trust me, it still very much applies in court. Um, the key is is what are you what do you fall back on to push back? Okay, and we fall back on our training. We fall back most importantly as well really on the on the facts and circumstances. Well, I had two armed men who were telling me they're going to shoot me and my wife, and they pulled out knives. So under those situations, does it really matter that I lightened my trigger pull from five and a half to five? I, I don't think that any reasonable person is going to disagree, but it does open up the window for someone on the jury to start thinking, and it's impossible for me to push back on that. Um, it, like mm -hmm. I said, Juries are weird things. Uh, they they really truly are. I've seen juries return very odd verdicts, um, and uh, it, it just is what it is. It's it's part of the system here. So um, mm -hmm. the less variables I can feed a jury, the happier I am as a defense attorney or a prosecutor for that matter. Um, and there's no doubt that changing the trigger is introducing the possibility for variables. However, look. Most prosecutors, and, and, and I was a prosecutor in kind of a suburban area, um, not, not in a downtown setting, not in a rural setting. Um, but in my experience, uh, most prosecutors across these settings, unless you get into really rural settings, they, have, they, they, they don't know the difference between a hammer-fired pistol and a striker-fired pistol. They, they probably know the difference between a revolver and maybe what they just call a Glock, which we would all call semi-automatics. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, these are, in, in my experience, these are not individuals with a extraordinarily high degree of technical sophistication. So part of the concern there is that somebody's going to have to tell them that the trigger was modified. And if they start Googling, what does that mean? Yes, this is how this works. Okay. Um, it, what's going to be forming their opinions on on what they should make of it? So, again, it is what it is. You're introducing weird variables for the prosecutor to do weird things. I'm always against that. However, at the end of the day, I'm more in favor of somebody staying alive. Um, my suggestion is that if you need to lighten your trigger pull, maybe that that isn't the firearm for you. Um, I think gone are the days, generally speaking, where everything would come with the <laughs> with the lawyer trigger of, you know, 10 pounds from the factory or something like that. I realize that you get into revolver world and sometimes the first pull and double action can get, can get pretty up there, you know, nine, 10, 12 pounds or something. But, uh, 
But outside of that, you know, the semi-automatics that are produced today, I mean, I'm not saying that the triggers can't be gritty or there can't be some stacking or there can't be over travel or a poor reset or whatever there might be. But I mean, they're all way better than I remember them 20 years ago. That's for sure. I mean, your experiences, Kevin? Yeah, absolutely. I have uh, um, in the in the firearms that I've purchased recently, and and there's been several. Um, I could not complain about the trigger. I mean, it's uh, even on the 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 cheapest gun that I've that I've picked up recently. The uh, um, it's a, a Sky nine millimeter pistol, you know, and I bought it because two hundred and fifty nine dollars out the door. Yep, let's take a look at that. Um, <laughs> the the trigger is. Uh, the trigger is long and a little bit heavy, and then the trigger reset is incredibly long. And I finally realized I just need to shoot this little auto loader the way I shoot a revolver and let the trigger go all the way back forward to reset. And 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 it, it was a training issue. It was not a trigger issue that, that had me mm. shooting that gun poorly. So um, once I got myself trained up on it, yeah, then then I'm fine. I, I think a major portion of this is if you're doing something to your gun, whatever it is, that opens up the opportunity for a prosecutor to say something, then your defense attorney has to counter that argument. And it t that takes time away from actually saying, this was right. a legitimate shoot. This, you know, um, suddenly you're not talking about the facts of the incident anymore. You're talking about the, the technical specifications of your firearm. And that, to me, that seems like wasteful. I, I would much rather, if I'm paying an attorney hundreds of dollars an hour, uh, I would much <laughs> rather have that attorney talking about the case rather than whether or not I had, you know, a Punisher grip decals or, or night sights right. or something like that on my firearm. So um, right. it's uh, it, six of one, half a dozen of the other, you know, like you said, people get to say whatever they want. So, um, and I, on that same topic, let's shift gears a little bit. Will, will a prosecutor, of course they're able, I almost said, will a prosecutor be able, but in, in your estimation, do prosecutors look on, self-defense legal protection plans like like we have with the USCCA, do they look upon those negatively or can that pop up and say, yep, this guy uh, became a USCCA member because he was just waiting to shoot somebody and, and see how that plan worked? Right. Well, and, and again, that's the answer to the question is really going to be nested within the training aspect, right? Because it's the same reason why people get training. And, and hopefully that's not because they want to be in a gunfight. And the exact same thing is, is true of legal protection programs. Uh, at least to my mind, that's that's the way I, I, that I would look at this. Um, there's, on the can front, there could be objections on some Sixth Amendment issues because obviously at the USCCA, legal protection means just that, legal protection. So there could be some Sixth Amendment objections to if the prosecutor wanted to try to get that into court, uh, and if for whatever reason, the defense bar, the, the defense attorney decided, you know, let's not let that in there. Um, and I don't think I'd really have any issue with that coming in because once the prosecutor opens the door of that, you know, you hear that in court, that's a term that we use in court is opening the door. So we have this, these rules of evidence and the rules of evidence are extremely important to understand because one of the things that I'm always unfortunately having to explain to clients is the fact that, look, I know that this guy is the neighborhood bully. I know that he's he's this jerk. I know he's been convicted of 20 different crimes, but you can't just go up there on the stand and say all that. Um, and I'm not saying that it's impossible to get any of that evidence introduced, but it has to go through the rules of evidence, which is which is the, the playbook 
on what is allowed to come in, number one, and number two, how is that allowed to come in? So sometimes things may be barred from being admissible in the court, and this is the judge who gets to make these calls. Uh, and sometimes we want things to be introduced. We want the fact that the guy has been convicted of all these other crimes and, this, and so forth to be able to come in. Um, and there are very limited criteria. Sometimes if he's been convicted of 20, 20 crimes, maybe we're only allowed to talk about three of them. And maybe only we're allowed to bring it up, uh, you know, in the context of, of his truth and character of, well, how many times you've been convicted of a crime, sir? Three? Oh, okay, three. In reality, the answer has been 20 times, but maybe only three of them involve his truth and fitness. Uh, so, you know, all of his you know, felony drug offenses or his whatever offenses, none of those may come in because they don't directly impact uh, whether or not he's trustworthy, which maybe his theft case, his ID theft case and his burglary case, because you're breaking into someone's home, maybe the judge rules, well, those are kind of truth sort of things. And they're recent enough because there's also a recency test. So, you know, sir, if you're on the stand and you're called as a witness and if somebody asks you, have you been convicted of a crime before? Uh, the answer is yes. And and this is the judge talking. Uh, and the answer shall be three times. And I, as a defense attorney, know he's been convicted of 20 times, but I'm not allowed to go into the other 17 because the judge said three because only three of them are going to be relevant under the rules of evidence. Mm -hmm. And I, I cite that as an extraordinarily frustrating example, oftentimes that we deal with, uh, of something that we want to go into, but we're barred from going into it. Now, if that guy, our, our gentleman here has been convicted of a crime 20 times, uh, if he lies about something and he's like, no, I, I've never been convicted of a crime before. And he's up on the stand and the jury's sitting right there. Well, that may have opened the door for us to go into all sorts of the lovely details of the cases that maybe he was, we were not we are not allowed to go into. We are barred from going into. So we would call that opening the door. So my point to all this is that maybe even if we as the defense attorney want to bring in our client's USCCA membership and all those sorts of good things, uh, and the judge, for whatever reason, bars us from doing so, um, if the prosecutor wants to open the doors, we would say, and now all of a sudden, you know, they want to lean on the fact of like, well, look, obviously they're looking for a fight. They're bloodthirsty. They went through all this training, blah, blah, blah. Right. And we get to then arguably after the door has been opened, point back of right. Yeah. All this training talking about de-escalating the fight, know the laws, shooting and the firearms, your last tool, your last line of defense. We're not trying to take lives. We're trying to save them and on and on and on. So what I'm saying is that I think that because the USCCA has such a fantastic body of, of training and of more importantly than the training, the right kind of training, that I th I could very easily see that backfiring for prosecutors in court if they really want to go down that road. And if the prosecutor is smart, they will have already gone that down that road uh, because there's one of the expressions in court is you never you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Uh, and sometimes it's, you know that's unavoidable, uh, but otherwise that's what you try to that's what you try to do. And uh, they could be opening up a real can of worms that could backfire from really hard. So bottom line, less I'm far less worried about that. And in fact, even if we're trying to introduce our clients, USCCA training and so forth into court, if a prosecutor wants to try to do that, and we've been barred from going down the USCCA training path for whatever reason, uh, great, the prosecutor could be opening up the door for us. So uh, mm -hmm. I, every situation's fact specific, but as a general you know, as a general thought process, I'd, I'd invite our clients excellent training uh, to be coming to be coming into court.
Yeah, I think that's something that you'd really want to highlight um, if the, uh, the the prosecutor can go ahead and say, oh, yeah, like you, you use the term bloodthirsty or whatever. No, not really. That we're, we're out here learning to do this so we don't have to fight because everything the USCCA tells us is to avoid the fight and the fight is the last resort. Right. So um, very good points on that, Tom. Thank you very much. Um, let's... Uh, Let's talk about some folks who, uh, you, you, who you, might. You almost seem surprised, Kevin. You almost seem surprised. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, you're one of the smartest guys I know, Tom. So no. that's, uh, oh, but, you uh, need yeah, to go out more. Have, yeah, I don't have many friends. Um, so, <laughs> I'm your friend, Kevin. Sorry about that. Yeah. Th- <laughs> really? Gosh, that's well, great. Um, the therapist said I should say that while making good eye contact. So. Ah, I do. I feel it deeply right in here. So perfect, um, perfect. Let let's talk about things that people should not be doing. Um, and uh, you know, in in the the most recent edition of Concealed Carry Magazine, we have a a story about a young lady who was a uh, um a retail loss prevention officer, um, and she happened to be armed as as part of her duties as a retail loss prevention officer, and. She ended up in a situation where uh, uh, she was shooting at the tires of a moving vehicle, and um, her uh, uh, her contention was she uh, she followed the bad guys out. Uh, they had they had stolen something from the uh, um, from the store and punched her in the face on their way out. And she followed out into the parking lot. And for whatever reason, I, I don't, I, I'm not advocating that what she did was tactically sound. She stood in front of their vehicle in order to prevent them from driving away. And, um, you know, bad guys don't often, don't often cooperate with, uh, with something like that. And, uh, they revved the engine and, uh, and put it in gear and, and lurched forward. Uh, she was able to get out of the way and she was a, a military veteran. She had served in Iraq and, um, she drew a gun and shot at the tires. Um, now, here's the interesting part about this whole story. We'll just run it all the way through. Um, she uh, she ended up getting arrested. They caught the bad guys when they stopped to change their tire like a half mile away. But she ended up getting arrested for reckless endangerment and discharging a weapon in the, in the wrong place or, or something like that. So let's explore this for a little bit and talk about things like, you know, shooting the tires out, you know, just shoot them in the leg, shoot them to wound them or, or God forbid, warning shots. I, I've gone round and round right. with people about warning shots. Um, what sort of problems do these things bring? And, uh, you know, at what point, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not a big, I, I'm a big fan of de-escalation, but I'm not a big fan of brandishing the gun and, and making threats. Um, what are your considerations on this? If you pull your gun out, um, should you be using it? You know, you should only pull it out if you're going to face, if, if you are facing an imminent deadly threat and you're going to use it or, or what do you think? Here's what I would say. First off, let's acknowledge the obvious that law enforcement attitudes are going to vary from place to place. So, uh, I can imagine there, that there are prosecutors and sheriffs out there who, who, uh, would probably have a very different view than whoever the agencies who are handling this are. Uh, that said, that is not the way that anybody should be conducting their life because you don't know who the who the law enforcement officers are. You don't know who the prosecutor is. And least of all, you don't know who the judge or jury are going to be, particularly the jury. So you just don't know how it's going to turn out. I'm sure that these guys who did this, I would bet that they have a record. I would bet that this is not the first time or the 10th time that they've done this. Uh, 
And look, my heart goes out to the to the loss prevention officer who got punched in the face by these jerks. Um, and I would use stronger language than that, but you know, this is a family friendly show, so um, it's not worth her going to prison over though. And that's effectively mm-hmm. the decision that she enacted. Uh, the problem here, among other problems, but one of the key problems is that once you discharge a firearm, various laws, various law enforcement officers, and especially various prosecutors are going to interpret any discharge of a firearm as a use of deadly force. Uh, I don't care if you are a, a, you know, you've got 10 million gold medals for pistol accuracy shooting. If you're shooting out someone's tires, uh, there are prosecutors are going to shrug their shoulders and say, I don't care. You shot towards someone. Even if you're not shooting towards mm-hmm. someone, if you're shooting up in the air or something like that, well, hey, that bolt's coming down somewhere. So that's a recklessly endangering safety, an RES, as we would call it. Uh, RES is recklessly endangering safeties. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's like the disorderly conduct charge or the felony world. So disorderly conduct within the criminal justice system is the, if you don't know what to charge him with, hit him with the disorderly conduct because it is intentionally so broad and nebulous that odds are good that it can it can still encompass at least part of the situation here. Same thing is true for the felony world. If somebody did something that you really don't like and you're the prosecutor, or you're the officer, if you can articulate why that person exercised criminal negligence or whatever particular uh, statute of law might be, and as a result, someone else's life was put into into a threat or danger or of death or great bodily harm, and that harm was foreseeable when you shot towards someone or whatever the case may be. Yeah, you're facing a recklessly endangering safety. What are some examples of penalties for that? Try decades in prison and felony convictions. So this is not a fine, a slap on the wrist. You're back at work the next day. Uh, this is not that at all. And let me be emphatically clear. Um, I don't know all the situations and, and the circumstance and the context of this case. It certainly doesn't sound hopeful based on, Kevin, what you relayed. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the question is, uh, again, we have to we have to prepare for the worst possible prosecutor and the worst possible uh, jury. And again, check your local listings because, again, laws vary from, from place to place and especially from time to time. But uh, if we take the most conservative approach to this, she put herself in front of that car and there's going to be a question under self-defense laws that if you initiate or becoming a willing combatant, uh, does that enable you to use deadly force? So, and I'm going to play the most aggressive prosecutor in the world here. So she runs out, she puts herself in front of the car, so they can't, presumably, they can't leave. I mean, why else would you do that, right? Uh, and then she pulls a firearm. Uh, that could be a false imprisonment charge. So that's a felony charge right there, potentially. In other words, she illegally prohibited them uh, from from moving about, from leaving. And again, I'm not defending that that this is the way the law works all the time. I'm simply saying, folks, mm-hmm. this is the way the law works. And you need to know about it so you don't make the wrong decisions. But when she then arguably committed that felony offense, she became a willing combatant or she initiated the the next course of conduct because you had two courses of conduct that these bad guys were involved in. Uh, you had the course of conduct inside the store culminating with the punch. And then they left the store showing that they were now disengaging. And then she's the one that went after them and reengaged. And I imagine that there's going to be, a, unfortunately, probably, and I don't know the state's laws, 
But there's probably gonna be a very strong argument there for the fact that she forfeited her right for self-defense when she became a willing combatant and she was no longer defending herself. Now she's playing offense, not defense. And you can't do that for property, uh, which mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what they stole. It doesn't matter what they stole. Um, unless you're telling me that they were in a hospital and they stole a baby or something like that. We're talking about property. Uh, we're talking about stuff defense, not not people defense, as one Kevin Michalowski yeah. likes to say. And that changes thanks, everything. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the uh, um, I I often um, stress to people that if if the bad guy's getting away, you know, let him get away, um, because indeed, self defense is the idea of self defense is that we want to cause enough dysfunction in the attacker to stop the attack, and and running away there the attack has basically stopped i mean he's is you know no longer um posing a serious problem and the, i think this speaks a lot to the idea of um people allowing their emotions to get involved in what they're going to do in a self-defense situation she was probably clearly angry that she'd gotten punched in the face and and these people were stealing stuff from the store she was hired to protect so she's going to go out there and do her job and stop them from doing that but honestly, folks, um, pursuing somebody, um, like Tom says, takes away your right to self-defense because you're suddenly not defending yourself anymore. You're pursuing somebody. And uh, right. it's, uh, um, I, I firmly believe that, that a defensive firearm is for use against imminent deadly threats. Now, there could be an argument made, and law enforcement officers have shot drivers who have tried to run them down. And... And they have been cleared in those shootings. I've seen that, and, and, and it's happened several times. And, and sometimes people are happy about it. Sometimes they're not. Um, but in this case, she wasn't shooting at the driver. She was shooting at the tires. Um, good news is she was exonerated. Uh, the, jury, uh, the jury ruled in her favor, and, and things were okay for her. Um, but think about the, the amount of problems you're, you're opening yourself up to just by engaging in, in that sort of behavior. And whether it be shooting a tire or taking a warning shot, um, Tom, have you had warning shot cases? Have you dealt with people who are firing rounds and they didn't know where they were going? Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and what's <laughs> There were good people who did not want, I mean, they obviously did not want to take someone's life. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, they had no records, but... Uh, warning shots are warning shots and and yeah. trust me you know prosecutors are not going to like that and you know i'm i'm really i'm glad to hear that that she was exonerated by by a jury i'm not surprised by that one bit because that's an ugly fact pattern for a prosecutor and and i mm-hmm. bet that only the most zealous of prosecutors are going to enthusiastically take that case uh my strong mm-hmm. suspicion and and maybe i'm wrong i mean i I don't even know where this is, let alone who the prosecutor is or anything like that. But my strong suspicion is that that's the sort of case where, um, you know, they're they're not happy about anything. And, and that's prosecutors mm-hmm. get those cases where um, for whatever reason, they they're they feel trapped about doing something um, and they don't necessarily enthusiastically are prosecuting it, but they are prosecuting it. And. And that's a whole strange ethics scenario to get into. And that's something we've got time for today. That could be its own separate thing. Um, but, uh, but well, I'm, I'm glad to hear her life is not going to be ruined by, by felony conviction or prison or anything. Yeah. But that and, was a stupid mistake. I just, 
Yeah, and I want to stress to folks too that that a a warning shot is not a proper de-escalation solution. It's not it's not the right strategy um, to de-escalate a situation. So I guess we can leave that one there. Um, we do have a question about um, the uh, the use of deadly force in a trespass scenario, and I'm going to say no. And I know that you, as an attorney, you're going to say, well, it depends. But um, it's uh, uh, let's uh, let's talk about this. Um, I'm sure there are some places around the country, and I know that um, Texas comes to mind because I know that you can use deadly force in Texas sometimes to protect property and, and things like that. But um, just, you know, the it, old man Mikulowski goes out and points a gun at a kid, this is get off my lawn. Um, what, what, what kind of problems does that open up? Because clearly nothing is right about that on the, on the use of force spectrum that you know, I shouldn't be pointing a gun at somebody to tell them to get off my lawn. Should I? That's, that's why you bought that grand. Um, no. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, look, so again, check your local listings, right? Um, my suggestion is that even if that, so, well, it depends, right? Okay. You got me. Yeah. It depends, Kevin, because <laughs> there's a million different scenarios of how this could be going on. Right. I mean, for instance, one scenario would be, I get home, Let's say I've got I've got uh, you know kids that are old enough to be left at home alone for a couple hours or something like that, mm -hmm. right? And I get home from work, and you know the the wife said that she was going to be doing some grocery shopping or something. She'd be home later, and uh, you know I don't know if my latchkey kids. By the way, this is this is not real. I'm just painting a painting a story for you, painting a narrative, yeah. right? That I don't know if my latchkey kids are inside, but I do know that that white van in the driveway. Uh, and that guy that I see moving around in my living room window, I know that those guys shouldn't be there. Is that a trespass case or is that a defense of, of other case? You know, it's it's like a Schrodinger's cat situation here. And um, okay, that's a situation where I could be potentially defending someone. I'm not saying light them up through the windows. Uh, I could imagine scenarios where maybe that's the right thing to do. But but outside of a handful of scenarios, you know, I'm, I'm not saying don't go in there with a firearm drawn to potentially protect your children. However, if you see that guy in the lawn, uh, my, my honest suggestion is that even if that is lawful in your jurisdiction to confront them with a firearm, I'm not saying to discharge them, mm -hmm. but to confront them with the firearm, as somebody who has represented more than my fair share of good people who have um, who have been arrested for for something that uh, for a, for a very number of different things? My my guess is that if they were all sitting here with me, um, their blanket advice to anybody listening is don't do it. It's not worth the involvement. And in the, that jerk on your lawn, that meth head, that whatever it is on your lawn, is not worth the headache, the stress, the publicity that could result in loss of job, loss of employment, potentially loss of house, loss of you name it. It, it is not worth it. There are better ways, even if that is allowed, because you don't know what that guy's going to do. So you go out, you confront him with a gun. Next thing you know, he's got three buddies coming around the corner with, with, uh, with knives or whatever else. That wasn't what you signed up for, right? So yeah. you just don't know what's going to happen. And, um, like I said, I've represented a lot of good people who have made, sometimes they've made mistakes. Sometimes uh, there there was a witness who saw something wrong and now my good guy's a defendant. Um, I, I assure you, their blanket advice to everybody would be, it's not 
worth it. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that my first instinct wouldn't be, I'm going to go stop this, this blankety blank blank from interfering with my whatever it is. No one's saying that that is not a normal instinct, right? Um, certainly not me. But that instinct can, number one, get you killed if the friends come out with firearms or knives or something like that. And number two, it can result in you losing your family if you spend the rest of your life behind bars. It can result in all sorts of ugly places. And I'm not saying that in a perfect world that necessarily is always the way it ought to be. But I am saying that we don't live in a perfect world. Uh, and that was even before COVID. Um, we don't live in a perfect world. So acknowledge that this is the world that we live in. Have enough pragmatism to, to protect yourself and operate accordingly, which doesn't mean that even if I have the right to go out and confront somebody, whether it's with a firearm or not, uh, my suggestion is that uh, you remember all the risks that you are bringing upon not only yourself, but your spouse, your friends, your family, your employees, your employer, your coworkers, your everybody uh, who may lose you. Um, one way or the other, whether that's mortally or, or legally, they may lose you. And um, my, they're going to say it's not worth it, all, all my clients. Even, even that's, and I'm, I'm channeling the people who somehow, some way got out of this with no conviction. They all still mm -hmm. say it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Yeah, you're not just escorting someone off your lawn at gunpoint or something like that. You're taking a lot of other risks and a lot of other problems can can open themselves up to you, folks. So, right. um, yeah, we we didn't even touch on the idea of you know how this applies with castle doctrine or anything like that. I'm just talking about we we're just talking about trespass out there and and honestly, in in a situation like that, folks, if you're not facing an imminent deadly threat, call the police and let them deal with it. Yeah, there might be a long response time and 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 the guy might be gone by the time the police get there, but you know what? Okay, then he's he's still gone. You haven't caused any problems for yourself. So um, with that, Tom, it looks like we are running out of time. So I want to give you the opportunity to uh, um, let folks reach out and give you a, a salute on Google. You can explain uh, how they can do that. And uh, sure. thank you again for being here because um, this is invaluable. And, and folks, we do this for you every month. We let you talk to an attorney and ask questions and this is all part of your member benefits package from the USCCA. So um, it's on there in your membership dashboard. Uh, log on uscca.com and go to your dashboard and look around. There's all sorts of cool stuff going on out there. So, um, Tom, how can people help you out for being here? Sure. Well, you know, this is something that uh, that is it means a lot not only to myself but to our whole team here at the firm. As Kevin mentioned, we're the largest criminal defense firm in, in the state of Wisconsin. We've got over ten attorneys, and something that really allows me to break away from all those other responsibilities in order to take these questions, which I tremendously enjoy doing. Um, but it really allows me to break away and to get into this uh, is when all of you guys, all all the viewers, leave feedback online. Um, and specifically, I'm talking about good feedback, not bad feedback, because it helps us, helps drive traffic to our webpage and all that other kind of good stuff. So if you don't mind my asking, just Google us online, okay? Just Grieve Law, G-R-I-E-V-E -E, Law. And don't click on our website or anything like that. Don't click on any websites. But what you're looking at is you're looking for, usually it's in the, in the upper right-hand corner, if you're on a desktop or a laptop or something like that, you'll typically see like a picture and then you'll see something that says, you know, 4.9 stars or whatever it is. A little bit below that, you're going to see a button that says write a review. If you don't mind clicking that, it's going to ask you to grade us on five stars. One being bad, five being good. Keep in mind this is the internet. 
So four stars is a failing grade. It, it really is. So if you felt like you got something out of this, I would ask for a five-star review. Uh, feel free to leave a note. I do read them all personally. It's not some sort of intern or something like that. That's me who's writing, who has written every single response to, to these messages. We have multiple locations scattered throughout Wisconsin. So if you really are enterprising, please feel free to leave multiple uh, responses. That would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, and again, not only from myself, but from everybody here at the firm, we tremendously appreciate it. So thank you in advance. And thanks again for being here, Tom. Folks, thanks for watching. Um, we come around every month with the Ask an Attorney webinar. And uh, again, part of your membership benefits here at the USCCA. So thanks, and we'll see you next month. Take care. Stay safe.